Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 18th, 2023. A couple of weeks ago, regular viewers and listeners know I was at DLD in Munich for their day-long event, seminar, workshop on what they called the circular economy, the idea of seizing back the land, of rethinking agriculture, of regenerative agriculture, striking back against big tech, big ag, big anything. Uh, it's very compelling, very romantic, but also a little bit vague. Sometimes uh, one is left scratching one's head and thinking, well, this is all very well, but give me some concrete examples of how to fight back against big farming and what local communities can do, local farmers, to fight, in many ways, the corrosive impact of big agriculture. My guest today on the show is just the antidote we need. Corbin Addison is a very distinguished novelist. He has four novels out. Wastelands, the true story of farm country on trial, is the first nonfiction book. came out last year to great acclaim, and it's out in paperback tomorrow. Corbin is talking to us from the wonderful town of Charlottesville uh, in Virginia. Corbin, welcome and congratulations. Um, is that a fair way of presenting your book as an antidote to the highfalutin um, idealism of, uh, of, of all this talk of regenerative agriculture and the circular economy? I don't know if an antidote is completely necessary. Or a um, compliment, think, maybe. Uh, yeah, sorry to jump that's in. A, sure, no, that's a good word. I, I think compliment's great. I mean, uh, look, th there's always a lot of you know high-level talk when, when you're talking about the need for systemic reform, and there certainly is in the agricultural world. Um, we've got a world that's defined and has been ruled by industrial ag for a long time. Uh, to the detriment of humans, uh, the environment, and, and of course, you know, animals, when you're talking about animal agriculture. So yes, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, very, uh, you know, well-versed in, in that high-level talk. But I think that, you know, stories are where we, as human beings, really put our feet to the ground um, and, and understand what needs to be done. And I'm, I'm a uh, practical person. I mean, in my, my background is in law and engineering. I, I like solutions that actually work. Um, I love the theory, but I'm definitely uh, somebody who wants to look for solutions that work. And I, I think stories really help frame them. So Wastelands is a true story of a community in Eastern North Carolina that was really uh, in so many ways degraded uh, or degraded um, by big agriculture, by the pork industry over the course of the last uh, generation and and they fought back in every way they could and ultimately in the courts and were able to prevail um, against Smithfield Foods, the world's largest pork producer um, and packer. And in so doing, they highlighted a lot of the problems uh, of the current system, the ancient regime, and and also really you know advocated for long term solutions, not just for their own community but for other communities, of course, big ag doesn't like solutions that would cost them money. Uh, and so they fought back in, in every theater that, you know, that you could imagine, uh, not just uh, in the court, but also in, in public. And I mean, the public square and in the legislature. Um, 
and it was quite a battle royale. Uh, and it was it was it was a fun story to tell. Um, but I, I definitely love to you know talk about the solutions that I think Wastelands does surface um, just through the medium of story. Yeah, maybe an alternative title, um, according to the, the the book, would be Battle Royale. You mentioned Smithfield Foods. This is not the first time they've come up. We did a show uh, last month with some filmmakers who have, have made a really compelling new movie and uh, a documentary movie about the corrosive impact of Smithfield. I'm sure you've seen the film and read about it. Tell us about this um, this company, which is partly owned by ch Chinese interests, and, and why it's so corrosive and what they did in your case in Wastelands to uh, trigger this massive court case. Yeah, you know, I mean, the story of, of Smithfield really starts uh, back in, in the late 60s with a guy named Wendell Murphy, who was just a classic American entrepreneur, farm boy, uh, you know, a school teacher, decided to build um, the world's largest feed mill and then decided to, to venture out into the pork industry. Um, and this is back when everybody raised hogs on the ground. Um, and, and, you know, Wendell would have probably kept them on the ground had it not been for cholera, which decimated his herd. And he, were, he was required by the government to actually quarantine the dirt and euthanize you know, all of the rest of his animals. And, and that, you know, led to a crisis that ultimately led, because he was an innovator, to the innovation that created the new, you know, the industrial pork industry. So, um, you know, back 15 years before in the 50s, Don Tyson had revolutionized poultry by putting birds indoors and giving contracts to other farmers who owned the land and owned the houses um, to basically raise his own birds. That's what Wendell Murphy did uh, starting in the late 60s um, with a company that he built called Murphy Family Farms. At the point at which he started offering those contracts, that's when the modern pork industry, the modern hog industry was born. And Eastern North Carolina became the densest agglomeration of porcine stock in the entire world. Uh, it still is. Um, a, a lot of these farms are old tobacco farms, and people were quite happy to take Wendell Murphy's contracts and save their farms from ruin or from sale. Um, and, and so over the course of the next couple of decades, the industry expanded uh, and consolidated um, 2,000, more than 2,000 concentrated animal feeding operations, which are basically just these industrial hog operations, uh, were put into neighborhoods, uh, small rural neighborhoods. Um, and of course, it, virtually everybody loved it because there was a ton of money that was suddenly flowing into the area, which is rural and badly needing you know, economic revival, except for the neighbors, most of whom were poor and black, and then most of whom traced their ancestry back on the land generations. So you had, you know, the makings in the rural South, uh, you know, of a, of a kind of classic race clash um, between mostly white farmers who were backed by the industry and the money and mostly black residents who were being affected by uh, the way that the industry was dealing with the waste. So you've got, you know, hogs create five times the waste of human beings. If you've got 10,000 hogs on a farm, you've got 50,000, the, the waste of 50,000 people. And, you know, the, the industry didn't want to spend the money on a processing plant for that waste. So what they did is they basically took big backhoes and dug pits in the earth and put the, all that waste, the feces and urine out into, you know, open air pits that they called lagoons. 
And then when the pits filled up, they, they basically hooked up giant spray uh, fire hoses and giant spray guns and sprayed that waste out onto the surrounding land thinking, well, waste is a fertilizer and this is rural, these are rural communities and, but we don't really care. Um, so the neighbors obviously were the one uh, constituency that was deeply affected by it. Of course, the environment was affected as well, but as we know with, with climate, the environment doesn't speak back uh, unless, you know, unless and until we actually see it rage, um, which it did. And, and you know, so the years later, after all of this development, uh, you know, Smithfield came in and bought out Murphy uh, in 2000, one year actually after Hurricane Floyd flooded this whole area and sent, you know, I don't know how many billions of gallons of hog waste down the rivers and streams into the Atlantic Ocean. And that was the point at which everybody kind of freaked out and realized we've got to stop this. But of course, you know, what do you do with, uh, you know, a Colossus industry on the one side that at that point before China owned them, you know, still was a billion dollar industry, the largest of its kind in the world and didn't want anything to change. And, and what do you do when you have, you know, a constituency of, by that point, you know, the news media had shown what Floyd had done to this area and, you know, uh, everyone in North Carolina and a lot of people on the Eastern seaboard were saying, you, you know, we need a solution here. Um, and so unfortunately, you know, the solution was pretty obvious at that point, you get some scientists, you pay them, they come up with a more civilized waste treatment uh, system for, you know, creating uh, our America's bacon. And yes, it's probably going to cost a little bit more, but it's, it's not going to degrade the environment in the same way. It's not going to, you know, ruin the neighbor's lives. Um, and it's, it's probably going to be more decent to the, the animals. Um, and that's what, you know, the North Carolina government. So, so, so Corbin, um, I'm the last person to defend Smithfield, but the way you present it, the damage was done before they bought in. Is that fair? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, the, the industry, yes. So Smithfield was before buying Murphy, they were the largest packer. So they, they had the largest slaughterhouse uh, in Tar Heel, North Carolina. Um, so they were at that point kind of the middleman. But they vertical, I mean, Joe Luter, who built uh, Smithfield into the Colossus, was all about vertical integration. So his idea was, look, we want to be, you know, basically from feed to fork um, in the pork industry. We want to own every bit and piece of it. So when Smithfield bought Murphy, they bought all of, you know, and not just Murphy, but a bunch of other smaller integrators. They basically bought all of Murphy's, uh, you know, processing and, you know, and they were quite happy to keep it that way, as were the Chinese when the Chinese stepped in in 2013 and bought Smithfield. The Chinese actually don't allow the lagoons and spray fields in China. So it's actually cheaper to raise uh, or to make uh, pork in America, North Carolina, than it is in China, because they actually have to have a civilized waste uh, disposal system in China. So when the Chinese bought Smithfield, they were quite happy to keep the medieval lagoons and spray field, just like Smithfield was quite happy to keep them at the time when they bought Murphy. Corbin, uh, I don't want to abstract this out too much because I, my introduction yep. suggested that this is not a, an abstraction, this is real. To what extent was the, and I use this word carefully, the deregulated nature of this situation a consequence of the broader deregulation of the 70s and 80s? Was this going on or could this have gone on um, in the America of the 40s or 50s or 60s, the New Deal America, the Great Society America? 
You know, I, that's a very, very astute question. And uh, the, uh, the honest answer is the entire sort of system of agriculture in America went through a, a profound deregulation in the 1980s and 1990s. The Farm Bill of the 90s um, transformed the way that subsidies were given. Um, but ironically, you know, because uh, you know, we America loves farmers. Um, the transformation didn't last long, and really, you know, there was a even the Republicans got on board with another form of subsidies that replaced the earlier one that was actually in in many ways more expensive <laughs> to the government to the taxpayer. Um, so, you know, do I think that this could have happened? Absolutely. I mean, look under the regulatory regimes. Uh, you know, of earlier generations, you know, you had all sorts of environmental degradation. I mean, you know, I think of my wife's home state of West Virginia and DuPont and all the chemical companies that despoiled the rivers, you know, that led to the Clean Water Act. Um, you know, I, I do think that that regulation, however, what we've seen in America is that good regulation can work without destroying business, without making business uh, lose all of its profit and go under. I mean, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, you know, have transformed rivers and streams in America, have transformed the atmosphere. Um, I mean, you know, stopped the, 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 the destruction of the ozone hole in, this, in, this, uh, in uh, the southern you know, part of the world. Um, and so, you know, we've seen that regulation works. I mean, so, yes, I think in the broadest sense, deregulation has absolutely led to a, a state where, um, these industries feel very empowered and free to despoil the environment and, and, and to, to also like, harm I mean, the people. The thing that strikes me about the story is just the fundamental bad neighborliness of all this. Uh, the, the fact <laughs> yes. that you would... It's one thing to ruin your own land, but everybody else's land as well. This lack Truly. of any... And communal responsibility or any social sense. Mm. Truly. And actually, I think that comes out most um, poignantly in the stories of some of the farmers who actually, against their own interest, um, tried to reform from the inside um, and from the outside. So I tell two stories in the book of farmers, former hog farmers. Well, one, one former hog farmer, one current hog farmer. The former hog farmer, Don Webb, um, you know, was making a bunch of money with Wendell Murphy in the early days as a contract hog farmer. But his neighbors came to him and they, you know, he was a white guy, uh, you know, but he loved his neighbors. And, um, you know, a black woman actually, you know, was a neighbor, met him in the supermarket one day and said, Don, I'm, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but, you know, your hogs are really making life difficult for my children. I mean, the, the stink is just overwhelming and, and we just have to deal with it. It's on our clothes. It's in our house. Um, what are you going to do? I mean, is there anything you can do to help? And, you know, the irony is Don Webb used to tell the story. I mean, he's gone now. He's an, he was a lion of, of, uh, of the advocacy movement. But he told the story of actually, you know, trying to fix it. So he went to the local soil and water regulators and said, hey, what's, the, what's the solution here? They told him to you know, mix some weird chemicals into the lagoon. So actually at great, <laughs> great pains and, and risked his own life going out on the, the lagoon of feces and urine in a small boat, tried to stir in baking soda and various other chemicals, you know, just made the problem worse. 
and so eventually went to Wendell Murphy and just said, hey, uh, you know, this is the godfather of the hog industry at this point. The guy would end up, uh, you know, on the cover of Forbes magazine having made a billion dollars from, you know, his contract uh, hog farms. You know, Wendell Murphy uh, and Don Webb had this conversation and Don was like, look, I've got this problem with my neighbors and I really can't. I've got to do something. These are these are my neighbors. The, I care about these people. And, and, you know, the way Don told it, Wendell just kind of gave him a look and said, look, Don, it's not your problem. I mean, ultimately, the, the smell they're dealing with is the smell of money. Yeah, Corbin, so, you, you know, gave that's... me the title for this piece, uh, When the Stink Becomes Overwhelming, which I think summarizes <laughs> it. We're going to take a short break. Now we're talking with Corbin Addison, the, uh, the author of a, of a wonderful book, Wastelands, a wonderfully important book and a beautifully written one as well. Uh, it's just out in paperback this week. It came out last year in hardback to great acclaim. After the break, I want to talk about the response of the community, uh, which is a very heartwarming story with, with Corbin Addison. We're going to take a short break. We want to thank our sponsors, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We're going to run a short piece about them, and then we'll be back with Corbin Addison, the author of Wasteland. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can also subscribe there. We are talking uh, with Corbin Addison, the author of Wastelands. Uh, Corbin, you bring together all your skills. You mentioned earlier you have a law degree. You've got an engineering degree from uh, Caltech in San Luis Obispo. And you are a, an acclaimed novelist. Uh, four previous novels all done very well. You bring together all these different skills, legal, technical and uh, the ability to, to to write a good story. Tell us the story. We, we you've, you've given us the background in the first part about this overwhelming stench. Um, how did the community fight back? Yeah, I was so privileged to be able to get down uh, I, down east is what they call it, um, eastern North Carolina. It, in so many ways, it's kind of a world apart. Um, it's a world that people pass by on the freeway going, you know, between uh, Raleigh, the capital of North Carolina and Wilmington, the port down on the coast. Um, nobody really thinks about it and almost nobody ever stops there. And yet it's it is a world uh, that has been defined by agriculture since, you know, two really 300 years ago. I mean, since the earliest uh, colonial times. And um, it's a world that still is to this day, very rural. Um, you know, country lanes, sandy loam soil, uh, beautiful stands of loblolly and longleaf pine trees. And, you know, the folks that live there that I got to know, I mean, there are a lot of folks that live there um, who are not in this community or not, you know, uh, part of the, the black community, but um, quite a few are. It's a, it is part of the black belt. Um, and, and so many of the, of the black citizens of Eastern North Carolina uh, trace their ancestry back to the slave days, um, and some of them still live on the land that their great and their grand, great grandfathers grandfathers acquired in during Reconstruction after emancipation. So for them, the land is really really important. I mean, it's the one thing; it's their heritage. It's the one valuable thing they've got in the world. 
and they love it more than anything. They don't want to move. They don't want to leave. And, uh, and yet, you know, the, the hog industry came in in this a kind of alien way um, and took over all these old tobacco lands um, and started despoiling their air and their, and their land. And I, you know, I talked about that before. So, you know, th- these are, these are people who um, don't have a lot of political power. Um, but there were a number of them that uh, knew how a little bit, how to work the system. One of them, Elsie Herring was uh, a black woman who had actually gone away during the great migration. She was the last of 15 children had moved to New York city and with a high school diploma, only a high school diploma, a black woman in the 60s had actually made it on Wall Street and, and built a little nest egg working for a couple of banks and doing good work up there. Then came home in the 90s to find a world change. She came home to take care of her mother and her brother and realized that you know this hog farm next door had completely transformed the world she'd grown up in. Um, and it made life kind of unbearable for her mother and her brother who had Down syndrome. Um, so Elsie started fighting back uh, to the extent that she could. The challenge, of course, was to get anybody in Eastern North Carolina to care because for vir- virtually everyone but the neighbors, Wendell Murphy, Murphy Family Farms, and then Smithfield, I mean, they were the heroes. I mean, they'd saved the area from, uh, you know, losing all of the money from tobacco as tobacco hit its slide. Um, nobody really wanted to listen to Elsie and certainly nobody in Raleigh uh, and at the state house. She called everyone. She wrote everyone. I mean, she tried to get the governor involved. She tried to get the attorney general involved. The governor at the time, Jim Hunt, was actually Wendell Murphy's former college roommate. I mean, you know, the sheriff in, in Duplin County, uh, you know, where she lives um, at the time was a, a hog farmer himself. I mean, the, the challenge of trying to get anybody to care was overwhelming. But Elsie tried. And, and she, you know, she ultimately did get at least one representative in the North Carolina State House to care um, but, you know, for the most part, it was lights out uh, that the, you know, the industry had uh, all of the, you know, the state house by the short hairs. Um, it wasn't really until I mentioned Hurricane Floyd. It wasn't really until uh, two things happened in 1997. Um, some hog farmers wanted to build a hog farm just right up the road from Pinehurst, which is one of America's icons of golf. So when you suddenly had the good old boys in the state legislature threatened with yeah. the possibility of hog stink on the 18th green, they decided to do something about it. So they stopped the, the building of new hog farms in 1997. Didn't do anything about the old ones. In then 99, Hurricane Floyd came, and that's when you know Smithfield was forced to come up with a new system. But Smithfield was not. They were forced to pay for it, and the scientists at NC State developed it. Smithfield, however, found a loophole that, it, that got them out of ever having to deploy it. Um, and so ultimately, the new system, which would have uh, avoided all of this, Smithfield torpedoed it um, and bought themselves basically 12 years apiece for a measly $25 million. I mean, a billion dollar company. It was quite a good investment that they were able to, to do that. Um, so eventually, eventually, the neighbors turned to lawyers and they realized nobody else was coming for them. And so the neighbors and some activists, some people I talked about earlier, Don Webb, the former hog farmer, he turned into a neighbor activist. Uh, Rick Dove, who worked for the Waterkeeper Alliance and was Woodle a former McGowan, military judge. Woodall McGowan. Woodall and Mc- yeah, exactly. Woodall McGowan. I mean, they, there were a number, quite a few neighbors that came together uh, to bring these lawsuits. They ended up in federal court. Long story short, there were five federal trials. You know, it's it's a it was quite a joy for me as a lawyer uh, to tell this story, and also as a as a novelist because. 
it really, from the beginning, I just couldn't believe how much this real life story felt to me like, you know, it, it not only a novel, but also a movie. I mean, just left and right. I just felt like, wow, this is laying itself out. Like I could not have invented it if I, you know, better if I were writing fiction. And so, you know, telling the story, the trials, the, the, you know, the, this battle royale that I mentioned, um, you know, the, the neighbors ultimately did find some resolution. Um, you know, they, they won all five federal trials and one of the largest, if not the largest verdict in North Carolina history was their third verdict. Um, Smithfield then settled for an untold uh, amount of money. I'm sure it was a lot, but you know, nobody's ever, it's, it's private. It'll never become public. Um, and the neighbors did get some money. Ultimately, the challenge though, uh, is that in, in many ways, you know, the court system is an imperfect vehicle for social change. It can give, you know, neighbors like this, uh, their day in court can give them some real justice. Uh, and it did in this case, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful resolution for these neighbors. Um, the challenge, though, is that systemically it doesn't resolve, you know, the way that industrial, uh, you know, animal protein is being produced. It doesn't resolve the, even the lagoon and spray field system. It, it's still in place. Smithfield has refused to change it, continues to try to consolidate their own power, um, despite the blowback from the community. So we've got a ways to go and I'm hopeful um, and, you know, I'm happy to talk uh, about the reasons for my hope. Um, but the story right, so, really so, is, as you uh, say, I, a hog, I, I, a I introduced form. this as a, as a more concrete example of the potential for sustainable agriculture, for regenerative agriculture, for rethinking the land, for challenging big ag. What are your thoughts on that front, given that you followed and written about this court case uh, are there alternatives to the Smithfield industrial pig farming or chicken farming um, model, which not only is environmentally catastrophic, but also deeply questionable, I think, on the moral front in terms of the treatment of animals? Yeah, no question. Look, I mean, there are so many different dimensions to answering that question. I mean, the simplest answer is there is a more civilized way, even if you were to allow Smithfield to continue, you know, having all their farms exactly the way they are, there is a more civilized way of, uh, you know, treating the waste. And it, it would be more expensive. It would, you know, cause the price of pork and bacon and whatever spare ribs to, you know, tick up uh, on the counter, um, you know, for and in restaurants and whatever. And at the end of the day, you know, consumers would just need to either they pay more or they eat less. Um, and and that and yet that's really the, the the necessary step to you know avoid the the despoliation that's happening at this point. But then there are other dimensions of this, and really more profound ones. I mean, I remember going out on a, a farm, a sustainable farm in uh, Kentucky, and they they were raising hogs on the ground in the old way. And I asked a farmer, I said, "Look, you know." Uh, industrial, the, the way that the industry has produced animal protein for America just seems unsustainable. I mean, it's unsustainable from a climate standpoint. It has all sorts of moral qualms from, you know, human rights and also animal rights standpoints. You know, what's the solution here? And, and he, he looked at me and he was like, look, honestly, the solution is for, you know, for us over the course of time, to go back to the old way of raising 
hogs. And, and that is, and we're just going to have to, as a, as a society, accept that we eat less pork. I mean, he said there is a way to do this um, that would solve the climate problem, or at least, you know, minimize the climate problem from the pork industry. I mean, that's obviously we've got beef, we've got, you know, poultry, we've got other issues, uh, you know, from the carbon standpoint, but from the pork industry side, we could solve this by having a lot of farms repurposing the land um, and going back to, you know, uh, earlier days of raising animals, but using better technology. He said, but, you know, consumers would just have to accept that they couldn't have bacon at the prices that they're used to on every burger that they eat from McDonald's or Burger King or wherever. I mean, or their, you know, favorite nice restaurant. And th that's, that's something that I wrestle with. I mean, I, and yet I think that, uh, and I've talked to my own kids about this. Like people ask, do you still eat bacon? And I said, yeah, I love bacon, but I only eat pasture raised bacon, which means that it's more expensive. It's twice the price of Smithfield, which means that I don't have it that much. I mean, I'm not rich. Like, you know, I, I've got a, I've got a family with teenagers. They eat, you know, eat like horses. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, we've got to think about budgeting. And, yeah, and so they eat like pigs. No, right. <laughs> exactly. So there, look, there are solutions that are longer term, um, but that would require pretty significant changes in the yeah, way that and our I, yeah, your point is about it's, food. it's always too easy just to blame everything on Smithfield. I'm sure there's a Donald yes. Trump angle here. We can find a way to blame him. But ultimately, <laughs> as you say, it's about us and maybe paying more for food and prioritizing higher food prices. Finally, um, uh, Corbin, as I mentioned, you, you're a, a distinguished novelist. You write that for years, uh, friends have been encouraging you to write nonfiction. This is your first attempt. Your first four books were successful works of fiction. You say you're going to continue now on the nonfiction realm. What did this book teach you about the craft of nonfiction versus fiction? I mean, you obviously bring all the skills and sensibilities of a fiction writer to this non-fictional subject but what did you learn writing this book mm. that you hadn't really understood or known about i i learned a lot i mean i learned one that you know i was sort of terrified to try my hand at non-fiction because it was it was new to me um and you know i'd gotten very used to to working within the fictional form and and the benefit of fiction even though you know all of the my previous books were based on true uh, stories that I developed around the world, I had fictionalized them and, and sort of composited them. It's easier in fiction because if you run into a wall, if you run into a story challenge, you just invent a solution. I mean, you know, the, you know, the sky's yeah. the limit. With nonfiction, it's everything has to be true and everything has to be on the page. This isn't Hollywood. So, you know, I don't get to say based on a true story and then fudge the details. Uh, you know, it actually has to be fully journalistically rigorous. And I also knew that, you know, there was always the chance that a big litigious company like Smithfield might, you know, make life hard on me if I didn't get everything exactly right. So part of it was, you know, the challenge of just making sure everything was exactly right. Thankfully, I'm a lawyer by nature, careful. Um, and so I just did a lot of homework, um, double and triple checked everything. Um, but there was also another element that was different, which is that when you come to somebody and I did so many interviews with, you know, people, experts, you know, people who lived the story with my fiction, 
but I always got to tell them, look, I'm not going to use your name. You know, I'm not going to use your, your story in, in a way that anyone could connect to you. So there were, it was much easier to get people to say, oh, sure, I'll open up and tell you, you know, uh, the hardest stuff that has ever happened to me. When it came to telling a true story from the beginning, it was, look, I've got to be transparent with you. Like I'm coming to you, you know, more as a journalist with the, the goal of telling your story you know, as you lived it. And, you know, will you trust me with it? I mean, it was really, it's, when I think about the trust that it takes for someone to offer their story to someone else, and it's a really, it's a heavy lift and, and one that, you know, honors me deeply when I think about all the people who entrusted me their stories, especially the people from Eastern North Carolina who've been exploited so badly through their lives for them to say, hey, yeah, you know, come sit on my porch and I'll tell you the truth and tell you about my family and let's have a meal. Let's share a cup of coffee and, you know, maybe two, three, four times. It was really a remarkable thing. So, it, you know, it gives me hope. I, I think one thing that I would just say, one of the, the, the reasons that I remain an optimist, despite having investigated some really awful human rights challenges around the world, is that every story I've written has brought me into contact with genuinely good, decent human beings. And the longer I live, the more I realize that despite all the challenges that we have, the solutions to our problems lie right within our own hands. I mean, we created the problems ourselves and therefore we can solve them. And it just requires people of decency and goodwill to come together. An agency, that's what we specialize in, uh, Corbin. We, we create the problems and then we fix them. Uh, finally, you talked about trust and you talked about Hollywood. This does sound like the kind of story that would make a great movie or certainly television series. I assume you've sold the movie rights. Would you trust Hollywood with this, though? Would you trust that they could recognize the sensibilities of the people involved and not turn it into an absurdly good versus evil narrative, which trivializes and uh, mischaracterizes some of the bigger issues. It's a good question. And, you know, I've, I've been around uh, the carousel a few times with Hollywood and I've come to realize that, you know, it really is, it comes down to a matter of, uh, of trust and who's involved. And, and so, you know, sure, this could be done very badly. Um, but I, I know having seen some really excellent things in my time that stories like this can be told beautifully and compellingly. It really just comes down to the right people. So I'm, I'm grateful to have a wonderful producer working on it. Um, I should say she was working on it before the strikes. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've got, you know, the writers and the actors that have struck. So, we can't do anything at this moment in time uh, until all that gets resolved. I'm hopeful that this coming this week, I guess they're going to be talking again and they got to resolve this. I mean, Hollywood's got to get back to work um, and hopefully they do it in a way that honors the writers and honors the actors um, because they're, you know, nothing great gets produced without us. Uh, you know, but we'll see. I'm definitely hopeful this will find its way to the screen, whether the big or the small screen and do so in a way that honors the people. Um, I'm gonna do everything that I can to ensure that happens.